He said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all the garden plants, which such, with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when, when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. When I was a kid, we had a door frame in our house with pencil marks on it. It was our family growth chart. Perhaps you had the same thing or have the same thing. Every year around our birthdays, we would be measured to see how much we had grown. It was an interesting thing to be able to stare at that door frame, which you often forgot about until you just kind of suddenly saw it, and you looked at it, and it was a way to be staring at more than just painted wood or whatever it was made out of. You actually, in those pencil lines, were able to see growth. You, you were able to see progress, but only the kind that can be measured yearly, not daily. The kind of growth, the kind of progress that can only be observed in hindsight. In our passage this morning, Jesus has something to teach us about the way his kingdom grows and progresses in the world. And so much of it can only be observed in hindsight. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, we're in the middle of a discourse on parables. This is actually one of only two extended teaching sections in Mark's gospel, where, where Jesus gives uh, an extended discourse on a particular subject matter. The other will be on the topic of the end time, so you'll want to come back that week, but it won't come, unfortunately, until chapter 13. Uh, Jesus, in this passage and in the, the passages leading up to it, has come to launch heaven's kingdom project on earth, the kingdom of God. And a series of parables here in chapter 4 is what he's using to provocatively press on his hearers the implications of that kingdom's arrival. 
So, so Jesus has come to launch, to inaugurate this kingdom project on earth, and the parables are illustrating the implications of that kingdom's arrival for you in your life. But the kingdom does not arrive or advance in the way we would expect. And if we're honest, in the way we would often prefer. This is a series of what can feel kind of like disconnected parables, but I'm going to give you a a main idea sentence to try to help stitch them together in your mind. What I think Jesus is up to in this collection of parables. And here's what it is. It's actually two sentences. In a world that values speed and size, the work of the gospel may appear slow and small. But don't be deceived. It cannot be stopped. In a world that values speed and size, the work of the gospel can appear slow and small. But don't be deceived. It cannot be stopped. Let's close in prayer. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but that's basically what I have to communicate to you this morning. Uh, three points. We're going to think about that in, in kind of three points which arise out of these verses. Number one, the light is here. Number two, the harvest is his. And number three, the future is sure. The light is here. We'll see that in verses 21 to 24. The harvest is his. That's 25 to 29. And the future is sure. That's verse 30 and following. The light is here. The harvest is his. The future is sure. Number one, the light is here. Look there at verse 21. Jesus said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. The point Jesus is making here is that his kingdom is not always going to appear hidden. It may for now, but it won't forever. The arrival and the unveiling of his kingdom is progressing according, not to happenstance, not according to divine whim, but according to divine intention. God is not hiding things. He's not hiding the kingdom willy-nilly. He's more like the organizer of a treasure hunt who hides things precisely so that they will be found. And Jesus is saying, the hiddenness of my kingdom, the, the present hiddenness of it, at this juncture in salvation history, is a feature, not a bug. But there is a clock ticking on the hiddenness. And even now, Jesus is saying more and more people are coming to see the truth of the kingdom and the identity of the king. And rejecting its arrival, trying to suppress the kingdom or deny the kingdom is a fool's errand. I'm reminded of the image from C.S. Lewis 
where he says, a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on his cell. In verse 24, Jesus shifts the metaphor from this lamp, which we, in our foolishness, and our spiritual lunacy, can't put out just because we say we can. He shifts the metaphor from a lamp to a measure. Look there in verse 24. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. A measure was a, a tool in the marketplace used to weigh out grain or other kinds of food. And the idea here is the amount of significance, the weight, as it were, that you attribute to Jesus' kingdom message is going to have everything to do with the way you hear, the way you listen. That's not just a preacher saying, please listen up. That's what he says. Look at the end of verse 23. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And what does the beginning of verse 24 say? Consider carefully what you hear. Now, one of my jobs as a preacher is to help you actually read your own Bible better throughout the week. So a question you may be asking or a question you, you should be asking if, you, if you're studying a passage like this is, why the sudden shift in metaphors? I mean, we, Jesus, we barely got into talking about a lamp and all of a sudden we're talking about a measure. What's the connection? Well, it's that what's being measured is the way you respond to the light. What's being measured is the way you respond to, the significance you accord to the light. And here's what he's saying. The more you lean into me and the kingdom that I am bringing, the more you listen and hear with eagerness and glad receptivity, the more truth you're going to receive. The idea is counter, kind of counterintuitive. But it's so important that I want to show it to you from, from a couple verses elsewhere in the Bible. So turn with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Now this one's actually easy to find if you're not familiar with the Bible. Because you can get to the Psalms by basically turning to the middle of your Bible. And you can find Psalm 119 because it's the longest chapter in all the Bible. Psalm 119. I want to show you how this dynamic of, what, of the measure, those who have will be given more, those who don't have, even what they have will be taken away, how that dynamic is illustrated in the Bible's longest chapter, which is focused on the Word of God. So look at Psalm 119, verse 34. The psalmist prays, Give me understanding so that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. See that request? Do you see, do you see the logic of it? Give me understanding so that I may obey. Understanding leads to obedience. 
And we get that. I see a lot of head nods. That makes intuitive sense to us. But look at Psalm 119, verse 100. I have more understanding than the elders. And on behalf of Sebastian and Josh, please don't make that your life verse. (laughs) This is is referring to the elders of ancient Israel, different thing than what's going on in a new covenant church. But, But listen to what the psalmist says. This is a prayer. I have more understanding than the elders for, that is, because I obey your precepts. So in verse 34, we saw that understanding leads to obedience. But according to verse 100, obedience leads to understanding. That's not quite so intuitive to us to our modern Christian minds, but it's the point Jesus is making in Mark chapter 4. To the degree you hang on his words with a heart to obey, you will understand more and more. And to the degree you don't, even the understanding you have will dissipate like the morning mist. It's kind of like riding a bike. You have to keep pedaling in order to stay on. The moment you stop pedaling, you'll fall off the bike. Friends, the application here for us is not complicated. What kind of a return on investment do you want in your spiritual life? If you just want to play church, if you just want to dabble in religion, well then that's going to be counterproductive. It's going to actually feel like that the, 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 the sand is falling through your fingers when it comes to trying to grasp the things of God. And yet, if you give your attention and affection to Jesus, if you lean in and lock in and say, Jesus, I don't understand everything, but I'm giving you my heart. I want to understand. I want to receive. I want to trust. I want to obey. Then you know what you're going to find? you're going to find an acceleration spiritually. I'm not saying your life is going to be easy, but I'm saying you're going to find traction. You're going to get out way more, Jesus is saying, than you put in. But again, if if you just try to coast, if you stop pedaling, if you kind of half listening, half obeying, well then don't expect to grow. You're going to become wobbly spiritually, and you're ultimately going to fall away. I mean, what, what kind of desperation is Jesus calling for when it comes to listening to his word? We, we listen to things with different kinds of ears. I mean, I, I'll admit that sometimes as a parent, I'm only giving my children or my wife's probably thinking, and me too, I I only am giving them kind of half my attention. I'm half listening. I'm focused on something else. But imagine you are a prisoner, and there comes to you an opportunity to be released if you can solve a riddle, and you have one chance to solve the riddle. If you can solve the riddle, then you will be released from prison. But here's the thing. The riddle will only be said once. 
how are you going to listen? You won't be multitasking when that riddle is voiced to you. And we ought to approach the words of Jesus with no less attention and desperation because our spiritual survival and freedom depend on his words. Don't assume, by the way, as we, as we think about kind of how to grow, how to progress, this is a warning not to assume that you're just going to age your way into spiritual maturity. That's not how it happens. Now, yes, life experience, and, and actually here at RCBC, we're the beneficiaries of people with decades of life experience. Life experience can facilitate spiritual maturation. It can add to your spiritual maturation, but it does not guarantee it. The secret for getting there, the secret for maturing, I think is captured well by author Susan Yates. By the way, she's the wife of John Yates, the longtime pastor of the Falls Church Anglican up in Northern Virginia, wonderful gospel preaching church. Susan Yates writes this, Quote, from the time our children are young, we teach them to be independent. We train them to use the bathroom, pick up toys, do laundry, and keep appointments. Our goal is to raise confident adults who will be a blessing to society. Becoming increasingly independent is the pathway to maturity. As independence blossoms, so do we as humans. Spiritual growth is completely different. Spiritual growth and maturity occurs when we become more dependent on our heavenly parent, not less. If you take, friend, the time and the energy to respond to and depend on God and his word, you will receive back your investment in more. And the more you invest in knowing him, it's not just more facts you'll get bouncing around inside your head. The more you invest in knowing him, the more of him you will be granted to enjoy. And all of this applies to you too if you're a non-believer. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we are so thrilled you're here. You're in the right place. And I just want to challenge you to consider that you may disagree with Jesus, you may not believe Jesus, but you have to face the fact that he said, at least Mark records him, to have said that your response, yes, your response, unbeliever, to his words, which you're hearing this morning, will depend in part on what you bring to the encounter. This is not to deny that the God who made you isn't in charge and sovereign in the heavens. He is but what you will get out of a church service is in part dependent on what you have brought to the encounter. In other words, it's not finally a matter of what you're hearing, but how you're hearing it. What you get out of this book, what you get out of this sermon will have much to do with what you put in, in terms of focused attention and humble desire 
Friend, if you want to really know the truth, if you want to give yourself a shot at knowing the truth of God and the God of truth, why not this coming week just take some time to read through the whole gospel according to Mark, which we're marching our way through week after week here at RCBC. It's, a, it's an ancient biography of Jesus. You can see his claims, his miracles, some parables, and you can also learn how you can enter into a right relationship with him. Mark 10, 45 says that the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, did not come to earth to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the most important message we have to communicate here at RCBC, that there was a ransom payment that needed to be made in order for sinners to be restored into a right relationship with a holy God. Our rebellion had severed that relationship. And when you're severed from the source of life, what else is there but eternal death? But Jesus came to bridge that chasm and to make a way for us to be reconciled to God through his death and resurrection. And one day he's going to return and he's going to make the whole earth brand new. But it will only be populated by citizens of the king, by people who have bowed their knee to him as their savior and their master. If you want to think more about what it could look like for you to enter into a personal relationship with the God who made you, I'll be standing at the door at the back of the service, and you can talk to vir almost anyone here. They would love nothing more than to talk to you about how you today can be made right with God. Why not read through the gospel according to Mark this week, even at a slow reader's pace, which the internet tells me is 100 words per minute. You can read the whole gospel of Mark in less than two hours. You're not going to invest your time any better than in those two hours this week. I commend that to you. The light is here. Number two, the harvest is his. Another short parable, which only Mark records, interestingly, this parable doesn't show up in any of the other gospels, starts in verse 26. Jesus also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how, all by itself. The word there, by the way, is automate, it's from which we derive the English word automatically. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. The arrival of God's kingdom, Jesus is saying, is a process. It's not this instantaneous event. And much of the process, again, this is, this is not in any way to deny human responsibility, but much of the process is independent of human activity. The growth of plants just simply cannot be forced. But in the right conditions, it happens. The plant presses through the ground, it sprouts, it buds. Even though so much of the process, every step of the way, remains imperceptible to the farmer. Jesus isn't 
disputing here that the farmer should keep up the daily routine. But the way the farmer goes about his work should be affected by the awareness that the final result, the end product, is not ultimately in the farmer's hands. And the parallel for we who labor in the harvest fields of God's kingdom is plain. We work, we sweat, and then we sleep. Some Christians and churches excel at the sleeping, but not so much at the sweating. And others really work up a sweat, but don't finally relinquish the results, relinquish control to God and sleep as if he never does, as if he sits enthroned on the heavens. Apart from the sowing and the reaping here, what is the only human activity mentioned in this parable? I mean, you got the, you got the sowing and the reaping and then the, the obvious rising and, and sleeping at night, but is there any other human activity here? Well, it's waiting. Waiting is the human activity. Waiting in faith. I mean, there are different kinds of waiting. You, you can wait for something passively, half-heartedly. Or you can be like a groom standing at the front of the room as his bride makes her way down the aisle. That groom is waiting, but it's a very active kind of waiting. We are called to wait in faith, confident of the harvest to come that the Lord is ushering in. I have to wonder, actually, if the Apostle Paul was reflecting on this parable in Mark's gospel when he wrote 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but only God makes it grow. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the growth. And growth is slow, isn't it? Like, like the doorframe of my childhood home reminded us, growth is slow. Yes, we should be urgent in our work, but this is a call also to be patient in the working. In fact, urgency, when it's tempered by wisdom, often looks like patience. Urgency, when it's tempered by wisdom, will often look like patience. I mean, after all, whether we're talking about global missions or whether we're talking about your relationship with that fellow mom at the park, we are not after quick gains, but lasting results. And how do you get lasting results? Here's the thing about it. Here's the thing about lasting results. We can rarely draw a straight line from our effort here to its final result. Those of you who are teachers, Congratulations on summer break, first of all. But, but you know this. We can so rarely draw a straight line from your everyday efforts to the end result. As parents, this is so vital to internalize and remind ourselves of, to remind each other of. 
If you have adult children who have left the home and, and you're discouraged about how they're doing, remember that the process is still being played out. It may appear incomprehensible to you, maddening to you, but Jesus is saying, only I see the end from the beginning. Only I see it. Your job is to keep praying, to keep planting, and to keep sleeping. Parents with younger children, the sleeping thing is a little more difficult for you, I get. But moms especially, I know it's Father's Day, but I'm thinking about moms here. The, the, the takeaway for you is also to lean into this long game. Don't judge your days. It's so tempting to judge your days as a parent, especially, I think, as a mom, to judge your days wrongly. Don't judge your, day, judge your days by the harvest you reap, but by the seeds that you plant. The harvest you reap is not in your hands. But the seeds that you plant are. The moment you start to despair, throw up your hands and think, I, I didn't accomplish anything of significance today. I have nothing to show for today. I have nothing to show for this summer or this year. You don't know that. How could you possibly know that? Don't flatter yourself. You're not omniscient or omnicompetent or omnipresent. You don't know what the harvest will reveal. God hasn't given you the ability to see it. So don't assume that just because you haven't detected any fruit sprouting, that there is nothing going on immediately under the surface of the soil. And the same goes for us as a church. We are only four months old. We don't know what God has in store for River City Baptist, but let's not, be, uh, let's not underestimate what he might be pleased to do. We're going to fail at a lot of things as a church. Let's not fail to sweat and to sleep, to trust him with the results. Our job is not to be flashy. And a lot of church plants think that the thing that will attract new people and keep new people and distinguish them from the competition as if it's some kind of Christian market is flash, innovation, ingenuity. Here at RCBC, we're not into that. We're not about the work of being flashy. We're about the work of being faithful. The kingdom grows slowly. And that's okay. We can trust the Lord. We can trust the Lord. The thing about the Lord in how he sends his kingdom, it's interesting because this parable is not written the way we would have written it. Or it's not told the way we would have told it. If you had to come up with a metaphor for the kingdom, taking root and bearing fruit, you, you would probably choose, it would probably be the, the parable of the, the cedar or the sequoia or something. It wouldn't be this one. Or it would probably be a parable about something not regarding agriculture at all. It would probably be a parable of God hurling down his kingdom like a thunderbolt. 
But rather, Jesus says, no, God doesn't hurl it down. He plants it like a seed. And the decisions we make as a church, by the way, ought to accord, not just with our 10-year plan, the decisions we make as a church, the things we're about, ought to be done in light of a 10,000-year plan. Last week, I talked about how beautiful it would be if in the age to come, on the new earth, we could have a family reunion because everyone here was present and accounted for there because we had all endured together to the end. And the question is, in 10,000 years at that family reunion, what will we so want to have been about? What will we want to have been doing with our time or not doing with our time? I I don't know all the answers, but I do know what we won't regret in 10,000 years at the RCBC family reunion. We won't regret having trusted God's invisible and unstoppable work beneath and behind our own. We won't regret having lived with a kind of mystifying cheerfulness that the world can't understand or explain, a, a buoyancy, not a smiley, happy, clappy, everything's okay because life in a fallen world is often crushingly sad, but still a Christian is trying to keep a Christian despondent and despairing ought to be like trying to keep a beach ball beneath the surface of the water. There is something buoyant in a Christian because the Christian sees the end of the story because God has revealed it. The Christian has a settled confidence in the one who is steering the course of history from world affairs to everyday happenings in our lives. Everyday happenings. He's a God who is in the details, isn't he? The 20th century German theologian, Helmut Thielich, who was a part of the confessing church that stood against Nazi Germany, he once wrote this, quote, perhaps when we look back from God's throne on the last day, we shall say with amazement and surprise, if I had ever dreamed when I stood at the graves of my loved ones and everything seemed to be ended, If I had ever dreamed when I saw the specter of atomic war creeping upon us, if I had ever dreamed when I faced the meaningless fate of endless imprisonment or malignant disease, if I had ever dreamed that God was only carrying out his design and plan through all these woes, that in the midst of my cares and troubles and despair, his harvest was ripening, and that everything was pressing on toward his great kingly day. If I had known this, I would have been more calm and confident. Yes, I would have been more cheerful and more tranquil and composed. The light is here. The harvest is his. And third and finally, the future is sure. Here's the final little parable, verse 30. Again, Jesus said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. 
Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. What's the connection between the point Jesus is making in this parable of the mustard seed and the one he's just made in the parable of the growing seed? They are very similar, but there, in the previous parable, the focus was on, you could say, the speed of the kingdom. Here, the focus is on the size. The speed of the kingdom, and here the focus is on the size. The kingdom grows slowly, and the kingdom will grow massively. But in both cases, it can appear underwhelming to human eyes. The final triumph is certain, but we know and we feel and we mourn because it's not sudden. It's worth mentioning that the mustard seed is actually not the smallest seed in the world. Some skeptics have said, well, here you go. This is proof that Jesus wasn't omniscient, that he made a mistake, that the Bible can't be trusted But friend, Jesus didn't make a mistake. Jesus was using a literary device called deliberate hyperbole. He was referring to the smallest seed that his audience, which he was accommodating to like any good teacher, the smallest seed that his audience would have been familiar with. And he was saying, think about the the black mustard plant, which is probably what this was, 10 to 12 feet in size, How does it begin? A seed so small that you can barely see it in the palm of your hand. And I have to imagine that this was encouraging to the earliest Christians who were hearing Mark's gospel as they were being persecuted and were being tempted to compare the size of their paltry little operation to the wealth and the might of the Roman Empire. And Jesus is saying, and Mark is saying, things are not always what they appear. In a world that often often assigns value to, to what is big and impressive, God's kingdom does present a challenge. This text confronts us with a challenge. How can something so insignificant turn out to be so important? How can something so unpromising turn out to be so unstoppable. The lesson for us is the same as it was in in the prophet Zechariah's day. The Lord spoke through the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah 4.10, do not despise the day of small things. Do not, River City Baptist, O little church plant, despise the day of small beginnings. Do not judge God's work or character based on what you've observed in the seed stage. The kingdom is not something you build anyway. It's something God gives in his grace. And it emerges out of the soil of obscurity and out of the soil of seeming insignificance. we will be misunderstood in Richmond. We will be maligned in Richmond. 
if we're faithful, that the day will come when the world will misunderstand and malign us. But Jesus is saying, welcome to life in my kingdom. Things have never been what they appear. Things have always looked more pathetic and small and unpromising than they really are. You're never hopeless. You're never alone. You're never pathetic if the king is in your midst. And we should also not have this kind of hand-wringing posture. I, I mentioned this a few minutes ago with this kind of cheerful buoyancy, but I just want to say again, as we witness cultural decline, let's not be people who are perpetually feeding the outrage machine and are acting shocked and appalled that the world is acting like the world. It's not to say that we ought not lament the loss of certain values and things, but our hope has never been in this world as Christians. At least it shouldn't have been. And it is not a distinctly Christian posture to have the kind of doomsday, sky is falling, panicky approach to things. Let's leave that to the talk radio hosts and the cable news people and the social media feeds. As River City Baptist Church, let's stand out as a bright and distinct witness like salt and light in the world as people who rather than saying, essentially, look what the world is coming to, Say, look who has come into the world. And his name is Jesus Christ. And no one else has Jesus to offer like the church that he founded. The day is coming, friends, when the prophecy of Daniel 2 is going to come true. You know that prophecy about the little rock cut by divine hands? And what happens to that rock? It becomes a mountain that fills the entire earth. At the very end there, Jesus kind of brackets, he closes his parables. Verse 33, Mark summarizes, with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. We thought about that last week. I'll just say here that the, that the verb to hear has appeared 10 times in this one chapter. That is the drumbeat. That is the refrain. To listen and to hear the words of Jesus and the parables will either enlighten or they will obscure the truth based on how you hear. Well, in conclusion, one thing that I deliberately didn't point out to you is in verse 21. Look back in verse 21. Jesus said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl? Now, what's interesting is, is most Bible scholars and commentators agree that this isn't translated the way that it actually appears in Greek and I really don't like doing this as a preacher because the last thing I want to do is remove confidence in your English Bible. Our English Bibles are amazing. You have an immediate encounter with God through the Bible. 
And yet, here in verse 21, you can understand why the translators render it like, is a lamp brought in? Because that's what happens to lamps, right? Lamps are passive objects that someone else brings in. But do you know what it literally says? It literally says, does the lamp come? The lamp is not the passive subject. It is the acting object. And it doesn't, Mark doesn't just say, does a lamp come? The definite article is there as well. Jesus is saying, does the lamp come? Which many commentators believe, and I agree, that it's probably a subtle nod, a, a subtle claim that gets fleshed out elsewhere that he is the light of the world. He is the one who has come, as John says, to illuminate things, to shine in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. Except for the one time it did. The one time it appeared to overcome the light of the world. And that was on the cross. For three hours, the sun went black as Jesus absorbed and exhausted the wrath of God that should have fallen on us. And not only was the light put out, seemingly, but Jesus was also like a seed, like we thought about last week. He was like a seed planted in the ground. And he went into the ground so that we could be brought out. His burial was a planting. Have you ever thought about it like that? The poet George, George Herbert, Herbert said that death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has just turned death into a gardener. All death can do is plant you. And one day you will spring up if you're united to Jesus because he sprung up too from the ground. He became a microscopic seed in Mary's womb. A single cell. He became an embryo. But one day, Revelation 11 tells us, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And believer, you will reign with him too. And I don't know how despondent or discouraged you may be today. But according to Jesus, one day in the world to come, you will shine like the sun. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that our future is bright because you, as the light of the world, went down into the darkness of death and sprouted up on the other side so that we as children of light can be part of that great harvest that your resurrection previews and ensures. And in the meantime, Lord, we pray that we would live with a cheerful buoyancy, that we would sleep well at night, knowing that the work is ours, but the harvest is yours. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.